Hey, everybody, and welcome to another episode of JavaScript Jabber. This week on our panel, we have Christopher Beekler. Hello from beautiful Providence, Rhode Island. Amy Knight. Hey, hey, from Nashville. We got so many Chris's now. You got what? We got so many Chris's now. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're down a Chris, though. I guess we're breaking even because we have the other Chris here. I'm Charles <laughs> Maxwood from DevChat.tv. And this week, we have a special guest, and that's Dan Shapir. Hey, hey. Hi from sunny Tel Aviv, where it's... Uh kind of high 70s, low 80s, wonderful weather, very sunny. I sure rub it in. That sounds amazing. Rainy it's here. 95 and humid here. Never rains. Oh, I like the rain. Yeah, it's raining quite a bit, actually. So, Oh, AJ just showed up. AJ, do you want to say hi? Good morning. This episode is brought to you by TripleByte. Applying to programming jobs sucks. You have to put the right keywords in your resume. You spend hours and hours on the phone screens and take home projects. And that's assuming the company even responds to your application. Well, if you're a software engineer, TripleByte can help. They work with over 400 top tech companies from big names like Dropbox and Adobe to exciting startups. You do one brief online interview with them. And if you do well, you go straight to final interviews with the company on their platform. It's like the common app for software developers. TripleByte does not look at your resume or where you went to school. All they care about is if you can code. I've helped dozens of software developers with various credentials get jobs, and this looks like a terrific way for you to get in and get interviewed and get a job without a lot of the hassle and overhead. You can go check them out at triplebyte.com slash jsjabber. That's triplebyte.com, byte as in eight bits. As a special offer for listeners of this show, if you take a job through Triplebyte, they'll offer you a $1,000 signing bonus. All right, folks. Well, we had Dan back on to talk about server-side rendering. At least that's what I think SSR stands for. Am I right? Yes, it does. Sure uh, now, do you want to just kind of give us some context here? Because when I think of server-side rendering, there are a few different kinds of things that go through my head, and I'm not sure exactly where we want to start. Well, first of all, we can start maybe by defining server-side rendering and kind of see what sets it apart from, you know, plain old rendering on the server, which is what we all used to do a while back and why this is like considered to be sort of new stuff, even though it's not that new anymore. So as I said, you know, originally all the web was basically rendered on the server side and all the applications were multi-page applications and we were using technologies like uh, ASP and JSP and PHP and a lot of three letters acronyms that all ended in P. Uh, <laughs> and yeah, funny that. I was going to throw in ROR for Ruby on Rails, but that doesn't end yeah. in P. Yeah. And then we kind of, uh, all of us transitioned to doing everything client side. Uh, and, you know, all the rage was uh, frameworks like uh, Amber and uh, Angular and uh, and, the, and those things, and we were doing multi, uh, single page applications, SPAs, and uh, same as with fashion, it seems like uh, what goes around comes around, and suddenly we are all moving back to the server again, but in a sort of a different way, and, and this technology is called server-side rendering. Although, to be fair, React, which I think was at the forefront of server-side rendering, uh, had it more or less from the get-go. So it's not that new anymore. I think uh, people have been doing server-side rendering for now close to four years, something like that. And the big difference is that with server-side rendering, you're actually using the same code on both the client and the server. So you kind of have this uh, hybrid model where the first page of the site, the landing page, let's say, is rendered on the server side 
But then the rest of the pages, when you transition between pages in the site, are actually rendered on the client side. And so you've got this kind of a best of breed of both a multi-page application and a single page application. And it's essentially or exactly the same code. Uh, you know, I think the term often used is isomorphic JavaScript, where it's the same JavaScript code running both on the server and in the client. So if, let's say, I transition from page A to page B, that's that code running in the client. But then if while I'm on page B, I do a refresh, then it would be the same code running on the server serving up that page anew. So that is kind of what differentiates it from uh, the good old rendering on the server side. I think the distinction I've heard is server rendered versus server side rendered, right? Where server rendered is stuff like PHP and Ruby on Rails and things like that, or even just static HTML, whereas the server side rendering is server side rendering of the front end code. Yes, I think that's a pretty good definition. And another thing that kind of differentiates it is that even when you're doing that initial page, when the code runs on the server side, you then also run that essentially that same code on the client side. Only instead of doing rendering, you're doing what is called hydration. So you're uh, kind of uh, attaching all of the event handlers and, and making the code actually responsive to user interactions. And that's uh, thanks to the magic of uh, virtual DOM and technologies uh, like that that make this sort of process possible. So what's um, the upside then? Because I hear people talk about it and there's all the kinds of technologies behind it. And we, I think we should get to that in a minute. But I have a lot of conversations with people where it's, okay, well, do I even need a single page app? And I think we talked a lot about some of these ideas last week when we talked to Chris about you know how we're ruining the web. So why add this other layer to it, right? If I have all this front-end logic, why do I need all of this stuff to run on the back-end or on the server side? Well, you know, so obviously we're adding complexity here. And when we get to the challenges and uh, pitfalls of server-side rendering, uh, some of those complexities become fairly apparent and the consequences. So your, your question is certainly valid. Uh, you know, whenever you add complexity, more moving parts and whatnot, it makes everything more challenging. From my perspective, there are three main benefits. One benefit is, is a benefit that was actually brought up, I think, by Nicholas Zakas when he was interviewed uh, on, on JS Jabber a while back, when he talked about the fact that on the web, we should be delivering HTML with content. Or when we are doing client-side rendering, a lot of the time what we're actually delivering is effectively empty HTML. So you've got an, an HTML document that's essentially just uh, empty, empty body, and it just contains uh, a link to some JavaScript, which then goes out and downloads uh, the, the JSON and then builds everything on the client side. And I think the point that Nicolas brought up with that is that this is not good because it means that if for any reason the JavaScript doesn't run properly or fails to run, then you're actually left stuck with an empty page. And again, that's not the way the web was originally designed to work of, you know, getting effectively like eliminating the HTML kind of out of the equation. So one of the big motivations of server-side rendering is that you're back to actually getting HTML with content delivered to you from the server. And if all else fails, there, you know, the user can still see the content of your website, even if 
probably a lot of the interactivity will be missing or lacking. So that's one big benefit uh, in this context. Another benefit that's kind of shrinking, but still quite relevant, it has to do with SEO. You know, Google recently announced in Google I.O. that uh, their uh, bot is going to be already is evergreen, which means that, you know, your JavaScript, your client-side rendered JavaScript will run just fine in the Google bot. But that's not the case with the other search engines, if you still care about them. And even when it, your code does run, if it takes too long to run, then the Google bot might actually time you out. And uh, then that will definitely hurt your SEO. So again, another benefit here is that with server-side rendering, you're delivering the fully rendered content to whatever search bot uh, arrives at your website. Last, but certainly not least, in fact, I think that's the, mo the most significant advantage of SSR, has to do with uh, performance. I can talk about, uh, you know, what it did for us at Wix, but uh, you can achieve very significant performance uh, improvement th thanks to SSR, and specifically the time to visible for the landing page. So those are the three main uh, benefits from my perspective. That makes sense. I'm curious if anyone else on the panel has uh, experience with this and can either you know, add to the list. I have never done SSR. I had learned a little bit about SSR. The, one of the current projects I'm working on uses it. It's not really something I configured. It's more something that's happening out of the box. But the SEO benefit was one that I was aware of, although obviously if Google's crawling now can handle client side, then that definitely reduces the need for worrying about whether or not your actual uh, HTML is just a, a loading div. I'm most curious about the speed improvements. It seems to me like passing a larger file and then still having to do things on the client side would make that difficult. So I'm, I'm really interested to hear how, uh, how this improves performance and how it speeds things up. Okay, so uh, first of all, about the SEO, it's more accurate to say that Google have been able to handle client-side rendered applications for a while now. It's just that uh, the Google bot has been stuck for a long time on something like a uh, derivative of Chrome 41. And the further back gotcha. that got, that got uh, the more stuff and new APIs just wouldn't work or stuff would break. And now they're going to be evergreen, so you know that's uh, one less worry that we need to think about. With regard to the performance, let me give a bit of background here. So at Wix, we have approximately 100 million distinct websites hosted on our platform. We have something like uh, 4.5 million domains, just you know, give some numbers. And uh, up till something like two years ago, all of that was cl totally client-side rendered. So I'm not going to talk about Wix a lot, but I just want to give a few technical details to explain the, the motivation and the process that we went, that we went through. So when, when you build a Wix website, you actually don't construct HTML and CSS and whatnot. You actually, what you generate is a JSON that uh, ha is a semantic representation of the context, content of your site. And then what would happen is that when, some, when a visitor uh, came to that site, uh, we basically use client-side rendering to download our JavaScript, which would download that JSON and construct the website based on that JSON 
totally client side, and we were using uh, React for that and also Mobix. And uh, what we found is that uh, we were running into performance issues. First of all, to begin with, this could be uh, kind of slow for complex websites. And uh, as we kept on adding more and more features to our um, uh, platform, the website just get, kept on getting more and more complicated. So newer websites that were using more features were starting to become you know, slower. And the other problem is that I think that everybody experiences is that we were getting more and more users coming in from uh, mobile devices, including um, fairly low-end mobile devices. So when you were starting to do client, complex client-side rendering on a low-end phone and, and running quite a lot of JavaScript, that would uh, really result in, in a slow uh, time to visibility. So people were literally just, you know, sitting in front of a blank white page for an unacceptable duration of time, you know, from our perspective. And so, you know, we were working on several uh, ways in order to speed up what we were doing. And uh, I have to say that uh, by far the most significant improvement that we were able to achieve uh, from a single specific thing was from SSR. Uh, for us, it reduced the time to visible uh, across the globe. Uh, the median reduction was uh, something like 60%. Or another way to put it, where our uh, median used to be is now where our P90 is, and our median is down to where our P10 used to be. So now half the user, half our visitors get the experience that was previously reserved for those, the 10 fastest percent. So the, the, perform, the performance improvement was really, really significant for us. Now, obviously, mileage will vary. I mean, for us, it was a, you know, our websites were really dynamic. All the content was essentially generated dynamically. If most of your website is, is static and you only have a small portion that's actually dynamic, then obviously the performance gain will not be that significant then you might be interested in, in the other things like uh, the SEO or, or providing a complete HTML. But if you've got a lot of dynamic stuff going on in your website, then the performance boost is, is really significant. And there are several reasons for that. So one obvious reason is that you need fewer round trips in order to get the content. If you're doing client-side rendering, you first need to get the HTML. Then after the HTML is received, you start downloading uh, the JavaScript. Then once the JavaScript is down, uh, you download the Ajax, uh, sorry, the JSON uh, using Ajax. And then only then can you finally start rendering the site. So you've got all these round trips going on before you can actually even start displaying anything to the user. With server-side rendering, the content is in the HTML. And since HTML is a streaming protocol, the browser is actually able to render the content of that HTML as it arrives. So, you know, if it actually shows you, let's say, the content that's above the fold while it's still receiving the content that's below the fold. So that's one obvious reasons, reason why uh, SSR can be faster. Another reason is, again, I was talking about the fact that we were getting more and more mobile visitors, including from low-end devices and slow connections, and we basically just use fast servers. 
So uh, the servers might, might not be faster than, or significantly faster than a high-end desktop device, but they're certainly faster than a mobile phone. So, so that's another big advantage. The other ones, are, the next ones are not so trivial. Uh, another advantage is that the server is pre-hot. And what I mean by that is that all the JavaScript that you need in order to render a site is already loaded, parsed, and often optimized in advance of that particular session due to previous sessions that were already run on that server. So with the client, you need to download the JavaScript parse the JavaScript, run the initialization. Initially, it's not optimized. It takes a while for the engine to actually optimize it. So it turns out that all this preparation for the actual rendering operation, in our case, often took as long as the actual rendering, if not longer. With the server-side rendering, that's effectively gone because everything is just ready for that session due to the previous sessions that were run on that same server. Another advantage is that the servers are basically in the same data center, essentially, probably, as your data. So from the client side, you need to do uh, an AJAX call across the, the internet. The servers are sitting right next to your databases and can uh, retrieve the data that you need in order to render very, very quickly. Uh, I already mentioned uh, that uh, HTML is a stream protocol, so you know it can start rendering as stuff comes down. And that's uh, contrary to JavaScript, where you can only start running the JavaScript after you've finished downloading it completely. And there's another trick, which is kind of more complicated, maybe we can go into it separately, that you can actually kind of parallelize stuff and do some stuff on the server and in parallel do some stuff on the client. And this way you're getting the benefit of like being able to do things on both sides simultaneously. So when I hear people talk about server-side rendering, I hear, I mean, I think that the story you're telling is, is pretty common. And, and to me, it sounds like, server-side rendering is probably easier to, quote, get right. But there's two things in particular you said I want to I wanna question you about. One is you're talking about the benefits of first page load as opposed to the benefits of a returning visitor. So the first question is, on these sites, are you dealing mostly with first-time users or do you have returning users to this site? Like, what's the what's the split there? Does that make a difference in the benefit that you're getting? Oh, obviously, if it's a returning visitor, then the benefit is reduced. Uh, and you know, if you're also implemented, let's say, a progressive web app, that may, then you know it might be re reduced even further, because uh, you know all, a lot of the files are going to be coming from the cache. And uh, maybe some of the JavaScript is even pre-parsed by the, the browser. But uh, all that being said, uh, you know, if it's a dynamic website, then even for a returning visitor, you're going to have to go out across the wire in order to check for new content. And you can't really start rendering before you get a response that says, okay, here's the new content or... Conversely, there is no new content. So yes, for returning visitors uh, to your site, the benefits uh, are reduced, but running the JavaScript still takes longer on a mobile phone 
even with returning visitors, than running it on a FES server. So there is that. Uh, and again, in the particular case of Wix, due to the nature of a lot of the websites that are hosted on Wix, uh, there are a lot of re- relatively new sites, er, visits, rather than, so we are kind of more skewed toward uh, first visits rather than repeated visits on a, a lot of the websites hosted on our platform. But if, from what we've seen, even for repeated visits, we've seen some noticeable performance gains. Again, especially for mobile devices. That makes a lot of sense. And I definitely felt the pain on, on mobile. Indiegogo is a site that if you ever load it on mobile, loads particularly poorly. So part two is what I notice is that when people, like, like I said just a moment ago, I think it's really easy to get server-side rendering right. And I think it's more difficult to get client-side applications right because when, when I see people make the rookie mistakes, like they use CDNs, which typically CDNs are very slow. They don't employ caching properly because you're using like these three tier CDNs and you're using like 16 of them. So you have, you know, five or six JavaScript files and you've got one from one CDN, another from another CDN. And then um, I see people not deploy REST in a, in a, what I would consider correct and sane way. So instead of having a single endpoint that gets user, like initializes the user and something locally to help manage sessions so it knows whether the user's logged in or not. It, you know, they'll go out and fetch 16 different uh, API endpoints in order to load the page. So not only do you have, you're doing all of these DNS lookups for all of these different CDNs that aren't employing caching because you're on a free tier and figuring out how to handle support requests from people that don't know how to cache bust is just not worth it, so they just forget about it. And then you've got all of that round-trip latency again, which is fetching the API. Do you think, I mean, and maybe you guys, because you're probably smarter than that, you know, are doing it right. So do you think that employing techniques to simply reduce the number of requests is going to give you a benefit? Or are you guys already doing that and you're saying it's it's really loading the JavaScript is what sucks it up? Okay, so first and foremost, uh, server-side rendering is not a silver bullet. It's not a magic solution that you can say, well, I don't want to get into all of the other performance uh, improvements that I should be doing, so instead I'll just do SSR. That's definitely not the way it works. Uh, This is especially the case because, as I explained initially, with SSR, you still also do client-side rendering. You need to do even do client-side rendering for the initial page in order to hydrate it, to make it interactive. And afterwards, while you're navigating within that site, from page to page within that site, all that stuff happens on the client side. So if you're, not, uh, if you're doing uh, too many REST calls, you're going to really hurt yourself transitioning between pages within the site. So SSR is just one more thing that you need that you can be doing in order to improve the performance but you definitely should be doing everything else like I said we got the most significant benefit you know from a particular line item from SSR but that uh, does not you know uh, eliminate all the other the rest of the work that we did and keep on doing in order to uh, improve everything else so you definitely should be properly caching all your files and you should try to minimize the amount of javascript that you run both on the client side and on the server side and so on and so forth and by the way getting ssr to actually work 
is not that trivial. You know, uh, I actually recently returned from a conference uh, in in uh, Lithuania, in Vilnius, where the title of my talk was actually the uh, challenges and limitations of and pitfalls of of SSR. Because actually successfully deploying SSR is not that easy. Uh, in most cases, people start with a client-side rendered application that actually works, and now they want to add SSR, and it turns out that that can be uh, actually fairly challenging for several reasons. In the case of Wix, we actually failed two times before we were actually able to successfully implement SSR. So again, the, can I, can the, I stop you for a second, Dan? Cause I think Amy had a question about pre-rendering before we dive into. Yeah. The yeah, I did because I want to also make sure we touch on, you know, we've talked about like server side rendering. It's not, you know, it's, it's hard to set up. So sometimes I've seen people opt for like the, there's various, values that you can give the rel attribute to hint browsers to do this type of thing. So I don't know if you can speak to when you think that might be a good idea versus going like full on SSR. You mean preloading and, and yeah, there's, yeah, there's like pre-connect, pre-render, all of these. Then they're, they're becoming more and more supported in browsers. So Again, resource hints, which is all what uh, these uh, preload and preconnect yeah. and prefetch are called, uh, that's an awesome technology. And all of these things that you can do are, are in addition to one another. I'm actually working on another talk right now that's uh, <laughs> titled, My Website is Slow, Now What Do I Do? <laughs> and I'm, I'm, I'm actually kind of listing out a lot, you know, I have that talk is essentially just a bullet list or grocery grocery list of, of things that you can do in order to improve the performance of your website. So one of the bullets is SSR and another one of the bullets is resource sense. And we, for example, uh, uh, employ both. Now, they are not contradictory. All of these technologies to an extent are complementary because as I said, even with SSR, at the end of the day, you still need to download the and run the JavaScript on the client side as well. And likewise, you need to, to retrieve the data that you need from the client as well in order to perform the hydration for the first page and then the rendering for all the other pages. So anything that you can do to speed up the delivery of those using, for example, resource hints is still beneficial even if you're doing SSR. So yeah, if you want to be a professional uh, in terms of, of web performance these days, it turns out there, there's a whole bunch of technologies that you need to learn, which I actually consider to be awesome, but I guess it could be kind of tiring for people. For me, it's like job security. I mean, and I think these are the kind of things where it sets apart like a full stack engineer versus um, just somebody focused on front end because you really have to keep up to date on a lot of the stuff that's happening, not just writing JavaScript. Oh, I definitely agree. Although, you know, there are some obvious things that uh, everybody should be going, every, uh, doing. You know, everybody should be properly set, setting their cache headers, uh, going back to what AJ was talking about before. Uh, everybody should be making sure that they use gzip or maybe even broadly for delivering their content. So there are some obvious things. People should be using uh, optimized images and so on and so forth. 
But you're definitely correct that uh, the more technologies you want to uh, employ and deploy, uh, the more uh, technologies you have to contend with. And with server-side rendering, I mean, you know, when, when you're doing everything just client-side, one of the great things is that, you know, uh, you can be just like, quote-unquote, serverless. And you kind of can almost forget about what uh, the server uh, is doing for you. It's kind of like a file delivery system, and that's more or less it. And your code just runs client-side, and, uh, you know, if it's working in your browser, it will likely work in every other instance of that same browser on that same device, and you're golden. And with server-side rendering, you suddenly have to contend with the consequences of uh, of uh, your server running out of memory at uh, 3 a.m. and uh, crashing. And what do you do about that? So definitely, it can add complications to your life. Again, going to that whole section about the challenges and pitfalls of SSR, which we can talk about if you want, or if we can keep on talking about the benefits. Yeah. I'm curious about the pitfalls. I mean... A lot of people talk about it like it's the silver bullet, like you said. And I definitely see a lot of the benefits, and I think you've laid them out pretty clearly. What are the pitfalls? Where are things going to fall apart on you? Or where are you going to stub your toe or hack your leg off or whatever, right? Yeah. So just one more thing that I neglected to mention before talking about the pitfalls. It's important to mention, I think, that if you're going to be doing SSR, you're going to be using some framework. So this is... Uh, I'm not familiar with anybody doing SSR with uh, vanilla JS. You kind of need virtual DOM for that, for SSR to really work properly, and that almost necessitates uh, some uh, framework. And uh, at least you have choice, because these days, essentially, every major framework supports SSR. So you can get SSR if you're doing React or Vue or Angular or even Amber. And I'm sure other frameworks as well also support SSR. Do we know what those are called for each of these? Because I think Angular is Angular Universal. For uh, Vue, I don't know what their SSR layer is called. I'm not sure. I'm just curious so that people can go and do the the Google search and just find it immediately. Yeah, I think if you just do Vue.js SSR, you'll find it. I'm not even sure in the case of React, for example, which is the one that we are using, I'm not even sure it has a special name. I think Uh, it's just React. Their guides have an SSR page, so it's not even, yeah, it doesn't have a specific name. Yeah, there are certain like frameworks that like try to simplify SSR for you on top of some of these frameworks. So like Vue has something called uh, Nuxt, I think, mm-hmm. and and React has something called Next, which try to simplify the whole process of SSR for you. But essentially, it's just a built-in feature in those okay. cases. Yeah. Okay, so. Switching over to the challenges. So as I was saying, we actually had a fairly challenging time of successfully implementing SSR at Wix. Uh, We had two failed starts before we actually succeeded. And when I'm trying to catalog the causes or the challenges that we encountered, I actually like to put them in two buckets. One bucket is what I refer to as uh, technical challenges. Those are just like uh, uh, problems that you may not be used to when you're doing client-side rendering that you now need to contend with when you're doing SSR. The other bucket is inherent challenger or inherent even limitations of SSR as a technology. These are things that you know are kind of unavoidable. They might be mitigated, their impact might be minimized, but they're there regardless of whatever you do. 
For those of you who are familiar with these terms, I, it's kind of like the accidental complexity and the essential complexity from that uh, famous uh, No Silver Bullet uh, article that everybody should read at one point or another. So let's, I think, let's start with the easier ones, with, with the easier one, which is the technical challenges. So one obvious technical challenge when you're doing SSR is that on the server, uh, you don't have the browser DOM. Now, you might be saying, well, why would I care? I'm using a framework. I'm not supposed to be using the DOM anyway. But, you know, let's, uh, let's all be frank here. We all use the DOM even when we use a framework. And I mean not through the framework. I mean directly. And if it's not directly, it's via something like jQuery. I'm sure that whatever React application I search out there that's not like totally trivial, I will find window dot something in there somewhere. Maybe it's an API that's not supported by the framework, or it has, it's an API that doesn't actually have to do with the display. It has to do with some other functionality that the browser provides. Or be that as it may, our code usually contains references to the browser DOM. So if you're transitioning from an application that ran really well as a CSR, as a client-side render application, and now you're trying to transition it to server-side rendering, well, if, you're, <laughs> if you don't do anything about it, uh, all these uh, accesses to the DOM will just fail and crash and burn, and your application just won't run. So uh, one of the big challenges is essentially to try to get rid of all these direct accesses to the DOM. So you know whatever you can eliminate and just use the framework instead, uh, you should, which is probably a good practice when you're using some framework anyway, but it's still potentially a lot of work. And in fact, one of the challenges that we had was that we, and when we were, you know, our failed attempts to do SSR, we had a small dedicated uh, team that they were working on the SSR and everybody else was kind of like ignoring this whole thing. So they were cleaning up the code but uh, everybody else was dirtying up the code faster than they were able to clean it up. So for every reference to the DOM that they removed, you know, two new ones were added or something along these lines. So they just couldn't keep up. So, so that was one of the big challenges uh, with properly implementing SSR. So really, the solution is get rid of whatever DOM access you can, and those that you still absolutely need, you would need to wrap them with something that does something like a type-off window different from undefined. And if it is, if window is undefined, you know, just not call that API. Uh, so you probably want to wrap all these so as to avoid sprinkling all your code with these kinds of ifs. Uh, any questions or comments about that? Okay, then, uh, moving on to the next challenge. Uh, the next challenge has to do with context. Now, in the browser, you know, whenever we kind of take it for granted that whenever somebody loads our site, it's like an, the application starting from scratch. And then when you, uh, if somebody then closes the tab, or even goes to a different uh, site within that same tab, the browser cleans everything up. And even if you do in like an F5 and refresh the site, you're basically starting again from a really clean slate. That's totally not the case when you're doing a server-side rendering because let's say you're using Node to run your server-side code, it's unlikely that you're going to be restarting your, your Node server 
on each and every new session. In fact, not only will you want to be using that same node context between consecutive sessions, you would probably want to be able to run multiple sessions within that same node context. And that has all sorts of interesting implications. Because, for example, if you have a mutable global variable, <laughs> that means that if it's mutated by one session, the other sessions running on that same node within that same node context will see that mutated value. So, you know, that can be a bug or that can be a privacy concern or that can be a security issue. So that's a really big thing thing that you need to worry, watch out for effectively, if you're doing SSR, you can't really use multiple globals uh, as such uh, anymore. And when I'm talking about globals, I mean obviously globals, but also properties on the global object or module level globals. All of these are basically out the window. You can't use them if you're doing SSR. Again, unless you're willing to restart the node server after each and every session which will really uh, increase the size of the uh, cluster you will need to maintain in order to support your sessions. So one of the big things was, again, doing the cleanup and eliminating all the globals that we were using, because you know everybody hates globals, but everybody uses globals, but also making sure that people don't even accidentally uh, add new globals into the mix. One thing that really worked well for us in this context, by the way, is ESLint. We were able to create uh, ESLint rules, custom rules, that would actually catch and flag uh, mutable global variables and uh, basically break the build if anybody accidentally added uh, such, uh, such uh, globals into the application. If people are feeling like this is a little over their head, when you define a variable, what winds up on the global scope and what winds up in, in like local scope within functions and things like that? How, how do you manage that? Is it all the, what are they called? The instantly executed function definitions? I can't remember exactly. No, but immediately invoked function immediately expression. Invoke, yes. Yeah, you don't actually even need those so much anymore these days because uh, with let and const, uh, they're just scoped to the block in which they're uh, declared. Basically, so as long just, as you don't do it in the global scope, you're fine then. Yes, as long as you don't declare variables in the global scope and as long as you don't use properties on your global, uh, you know, uh, yeah, like window or the, the global this or whatever, and as long as you also don't have like uh, module level uh, variables. But the, the trick here is that these things are, you know, the, these things are useful. People generally need a global state, so you do need to keep it somewhere. And uh, one thing that we found that was very uh, useful for us is that uh, every session gets a unique session ID. In our case, it's just a randomized GUID, and we just replaced all our globals with uh, weak maps that were keyed on on those on that session ID. So I'm sorry, say that again, you, you created them based on what? What kind of maps? So let's say for every session that I have, I have a unique ID. I just uh, ran, generate a random yeah. GUID. Okay. Mm -hmm. uh, let's say I used to have uh, a global variable uh, that was a counter that I would increment whenever the user did something. 
And now I can't have that global anymore because if I'm running two sessions within the same context, you know, the both sessions would try to use that same uh, counter and would step on each other's feet. So instead of having just this global variable that contains a number, I now have that global variable referencing a weak map, JavaScript weak map. And the key is the session ID and the value is that counter for each session. I hope you've, that was made sense. I'm, yeah. a, I'm a little curious about not a term that I'm familiar with, so I'm going to put a link into the show notes for the MDN where it talks about what that is. Uh, weak map. I was a little curious about, you mentioned module level variables. Have, did you run into and have you run into trouble working with third-party modules uh, where there's no real way around that and you just have to disallow use of that module or not use it at all? Or are there ways to mitigate that? You know what? First of all, React itself and as a framework was built for SSR. So there's no problem there. They designed it for, for that from the get-go. Most libraries like uh, Lodash uh, and, and whatnot are stateless. So again, no problem. But for sure, if you're using uh, some sort of a third-party code that is uh, stateful, then you can't really use it anymore in SS on the server side. Gotcha. Yeah, so that's definitely something to, to work, to watch out for. And another limitation, another challenge that we ran into uh, had to do with the memory leaks. You know, let's say uh, let's say you have a, a client-side rendered application and it leaks uh, 10 kilobytes a second. Anybody thinks that's a bad thing? Can that be ignored, do you think? Putting the question out it's, there. It's not great, uh, you, depending on how long your average use case yeah, is. So I was going to going to depend on what the user's doing probably. I mean, it's not a good thing. <laughs> well, you know, no me no memory leak is a good thing, but the reality is that uh, unless you're uh, building a web page on which the user spends their entire day like uh, Facebook or Gmail, you might not care because if the average duration of a session for on your site is let's say 5 minutes, then at K at uh, at uh, 10 kilobytes per second, that's three megabytes of, of memory. And, you know, that's not nice, but it's not the end of the world. Uh, it's something that you could probably live with. On the other hand, if you leak memory at that same rate on your server, then over a 24-hour uh, period, your leak will run up to almost one gigabyte. And that's a whole different story. And that goes back to what I was talking about at the beginning of our talk, where, you know, you know like at 3 a.m., your server crashes because it's, it, it ran out of memory. And all of a sudden, all these small memory leaks are not things that you can essentially ignore. Or, you know, it's not so much that people ignore them. It's just that people just don't notice them. They're unaware of the leaks in their applications because they never really become a factor. And they do definitely become a factor when you do SSR. So you need to profile your applications uh, over time and you need to become uh, familiar with uh, tools like the node inspector and stuff like that and make sure that your application doesn't uh, leak memory if you don't like uh, phone calls in the middle of the night. <laughs> I specifically like you pointing this out because I think sometimes people are really eager to jump on the bandwagon of this kind of stuff and not understanding you know, I'm, I know, like, I'm glad Chuck chimed in and asked about, um, like, the pitfalls, but it's good to understand. Yeah, it's good to fully understand what you're getting yourself into. Um, 
And by the way, overly excited. uh, Sorry to interrupt, but in fact, these are the easy ones. These, (laughs) these are the technical challenges. I haven't even gotten to the inherent challenges, the the problems that you basically can't can't eliminate because they're inherent to the technology. And jumping quickly into this, because you know this uh, talk is starting to to run some time. But you know when you're doing client side rendering, time to visible and time to interactive are essentially one and the same. When your JavaScript constructs that DOM, the DOM becomes visible, and it's also immediately uh, interactive. With SSR, that's no longer the case. By definition, the HTML that arrives from the server is, a, is at least mostly inert. Links might work, some buttons might work, but anything that requires sophisticated JavaScript functionality in order to work doesn't actually work until you perform the client-side hydration. And the client-side hydration takes some time because basically what happens is for the client-side hydration, you need to download the JavaScript and essentially run that same JavaScript that you would run on, that you ran on the server, you now need to essentially run it again on the client. So what we've seen at Wix is that while we dramatically improved our time to visible, time to interactive at best stayed the same. At worst, it actually increased. So now you get this kind of, of a delta that you have a visible site, but the site is not actually interactive yet. If, for example, if there's a menu and the user, you know, visitor clicks on a menu, nothing will happen. And I, I heard about a recent uh, Akamai uh, uh, research that showed that uh, if uh, sites are, are, take longer than like uh, 30% of the time of the visibility to become interactive, users start to rage click, <laughs> you know, kind of like we do on elevators or whatever. So it's beyond performance issue. It literally becomes like a broken site, a site that doesn't respond to my interactions. And, and that's kind of inherent into the technology. It's something that you can mitigate, but not something that you can eliminate. Now, it's often something that you can live with, especially if that difference is small, because usually people don't like instantaneously start clicking on the site as soon as something appears. Usually, it takes you a second or two to actually, you know, view the site, figure out where the buttons are before you actually start clicking on them. And if you're able to make that site interactive within that period of time that the user takes to get, you know, like oriented, reoriented within the site, then you're okay. But if it takes you noticeably longer than that, then you may frustrate your users. They may think that the site is actually broken. Now, as I said, there are ways to mitigate this. For example, you could do something like, uh, I refer to it as progressive hydration. Instead of hydrating the entire page as a whole, you might uh, first uh, hydrate the part that's above the fold, and only after that, you would hydrate the part that's uh, below the fold. So at least the part that's initially visible is responsive more quickly than than the part that's actually uh, uh you know, the user doesn't initially see. Or maybe some of the functionality, you might even like enable interactivity with some simple inlined JavaScript, just that you can, you know, things that the user is likely to press on really quickly actually would react to, to the user interaction. 
But again, this is like inherent problem with the technology. And, and the only way to really mitigate it is to reduce the hydration time. That's it. Nothing else that you can do. And in this context, by the way, it's worth noting that uh, Google are apparently quite aware of this because uh, the Google Lighthouse uh, tool that's become a kind of like uh, uh, the industry de facto standard for measuring performance for general websites places a significant uh, aspect of its score on, on time to interactive because Google have kind of figured that uh, people have, have really improved the, the time to visibility in a lot of sites but that time to interactive is not yet where where it should be. So so that definitely is an issue that you want to watch out for. Any comments or questions about that? I just think uh, it's interesting how Google continually moves that metric up. And uh, if you're not staying on top of it, I mean, you, you can fall off rankings just because of the performance of your website. Yeah. yeah, although that's not such an easy thing to do. Look, you know, if people obviously don't go to your website and so your website becomes unpopular because it's slow, if your bounce rate is so high that nobody stays on your website, uh, then you will definitely fall in the rankings. But, uh, and likewise, if your site is so slow that you get a soft 404 because the Google bot times out on actually trying to render your site, then again, uh, you, you will fall in the ranking. But for most websites, even if they're kind of slow, that doesn't directly impact their ranking. Google only really penalizes, at least based on what they say, they only penalize uh, for performance on the really slowest websites on mobile. But that does not mean that we should not be focusing on, on, on performance. We definitely should be. So I've, I've got a question that's more specific to uh, the Wix scenario than server-side rendering. So feel free to cut me off. This is off base. But with Wix, you are managing sites that get a lot of first-time views. And I would think, just from my own experience, like I've A-B tested, post the same article on my own blog versus post it on Medium. Medium is the thing that's going to show up in search results, even though it's linking back to the original, Right. So with something like Wix, where you're handling a lot of different domains and a lot of content that is unique content, how the heck does somebody place in search rankings these days? Well, look, from the search engine's perspective, uh, they don't know, or they can know, but they don't need to know that the site is hosted on Wix. So Wix is just a technology for hosting a website. The fact that your domain sits on our server, I mean, there are a bunch of, of hosting providers out there that can host, let's say, your WordPress website. So from that perspective, a website is a website is a website. You know, um, the fact that, that you know, uh, x.com domain is, is served from a Wix website, from a Wix server, doesn't really make a difference in this context. And all the stand- well, I'm not well, an SEO expert, but all the standard regular SEO uh, te- techniques uh, are as relevant in Wix as they are in any other scenario. Okay. I, the reason I was asking is it, it just seems like the big four sites are the sites that get all the traffic and everybody else is like second page, you know, like Medium, GitHub, Pinterest, you know, like if you're posting anywhere else, it seems like you just are relegated to the end of the list. Well, first of all, it's really kind of sad what you're saying because I, I still think that the, the web is like the, the big democratization of the world. So uh, That would be wonderful. <laughs> I would love uh, that. 
but uh, first of all, going back to what you said, I, I do want to emphasize that there are also Wix websites that get uh, like uh, tens of thousands of visits and repeat visits per day. So it's not like all our sites are are, are like small sites, but we definitely host a lot of, of sites for small and medium businesses. And a lot of these small and medium businesses, what they're concerned about is ranking high for uh, search terms in, in for their that are really relevant to them in their particular uh, geography. So they don't try to rank for a world like uh, news, but they might want to rank for news about uh, your particular community. So if you you know do a search on news within your city or town or whatever. They want to rank high for that, and that they can definitely do using Wix or whatever other hosting solution they, they prefer to use. Okay, yeah. so no, there's nothing, there's no special tricks up your sleeve that you have, or or certain way that you structure content to to in particular help with all the users on your platform versus another platform that's using standard good practice stuff we have look again i'm not a i'm not an seo expert not by a long shot I, we do have a, a feature called wix seo Wiz, which kind of walks you through the steps of properly configuring your site for seo which makes the process much easier especially for people who are not knowledgeable in this like me but at the end of the day, it's still those best, the same practices that you would be using, whether you're using Wix or whether you're using anything else. Yeah. There's another important intrinsic challenge that I want to mention, and that's a, a, a term called a diverge or divergence. And that's what happens when the HTML that's generated by the server-side rendering is different from the HTML that's generated on the client side. As I said, you know, when, when you're using server-side rendering, you're actually running the same rendering code twice, once on the server side and another on the client side. The client side only does something called hydration, which is basically just enabling the functionality, hooking up all the event handlers. But that is really what goes on when the HTML is essentially identical. What happens if the HTML is not the same? In that case, the client-side rendering actually overwrites the, the server-side rendering. So then you get anything from an annoying flicker of uh, one type of content then being replaced with different content to like the serious performance hit because significant parts of your page have to be essentially re-rendered. So you did like a lot of work for nothing because you're basically replacing a lot of wrong stuff that you put on the server with the correct stuff on the client. So you don't want to do that. So from our experience, there are two main reasons for, for diverges. The first one is essentially a bug. Uh, for some reason, your, your code running on the server side is producing different results than the code that's running on the client side. And uh, the fix for that is to do, as part of your testing, is to do end-to-end -end testing that does a comparison testing and makes sure, make sure that the HTML, the content delivered from the server and the content being delivered from, created by the client is the same whenever it should be the same. So that's one type of diverge. The other part is justify divergence. Uh, let's say your site displays the current uh, date and time on the left-hand top corner of the site because that's what uh, the product wanted. And obviously, the time on the server 
is going to be different than the time on the client. Maybe, you know, it could be in a different time zone. So in that case, uh, it's kind of a justified diverge because it's by definition going to be different values. In that case, what you probably want to do is just to change your logic so that you intentionally maybe don't just don't render that stuff on the server side at all because probably not showing anything in that case, a blank area or something is probably better than displaying the wrong value for a short duration and looking like an idiot. But again, that's something that you definitely want to watch out for. And one really important thing that I need to say before we run out of time, the one thing that made the biggest difference between the failed attempts that we made and the successful one is that in a successful attempt, we did two important things. First of all, we uh, allocated enough resources for it. So initially, we were overly optimistic. We thought, hey, uh, SSR is a built-in feature of React. This should be easy to do, and it turns out that it wasn't. So the successful project, we actually allocated a large team, gave them enough time to do it properly. So that's so. Be aware that if you're going to do SSR, this unless your application is really simple, this is probably not going to be just a, fl- a flip of the switch. The other thing is that we took a test-first approach. So we had a working client-side rendered solution. We wrote a whole bunch of tests that passed for the client-side rendered solution, and we made sure that as we transitioned to SSR none of those tests failed. So that was a huge difference for us of taking this test-first approach to the development of server-side rendering. And I can't stress that this enough. So really quickly, we are kind of running short on time, but I I just want to ask if you can just answer these, you know, in a minute or so each is when should people be looking at doing server-side rendering and how should they get started with server-side rendering? You should be doing server-side rendering if you're using if you have a dynamic website, probably created using uh, one of the leading frameworks, and uh, your time to visibility is just uh, too long, and you've done the obvious things like uh, properly configuring your cache headers and uh, gzipping your files and all that stuff, and it's still too long, and you've got all this JavaScript that you have to run, you can't get away from it. Uh, and uh, then you should be looking at server-side rendering. And when you do that, assuming you do it right, correctly, then you can expect uh, potentially a significant performance improvement. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give you full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. All right. Well, let's go ahead and do some picks. Chris, do you want to start us off with picks? Sure thing. I actually have 
a very simple pick this week, uh, and that is taking some time for yourself. My wife is a teacher, and this time of year is crazy for her, and I am habitually overloading myself with projects. We took a long weekend in Newport, Rhode Island this weekend and sort of made up our itinerary as we went along and didn't try to fit in a million different things and just actually took it easy. And it's amazingly refreshing to take a couple of days off and not think about coding or trying to teach elementary uh, and middle school students. So strong recommend there. Make sure to take some time for yourself once in a while. Nice. Amy, what are your picks? I'm going to go with a course that, in theory, sounds absolutely amazing. I have not taken it, so I can't say anything about it. That angle, somebody I work with um, took it, and they were talking about it and um, provided me the link. So I figured it was uh, worth checking out. But it's on Coursera. It's called uh, Learning How to Learn, Powerful Mental Tools to Help You Master Tough Subjects. So I love this kind of stuff. Um, I love that course. Have you taken it? I'm definitely I haven't completed it when I have time because it sounds really good. I just I think like this is there's so many courses out there about like learn React, learn server side rendering, learn um, you know the latest and greatest with CSS. Like the list goes on and on. But at the end of the day, like this is the course to take <laughs> if you are going to be in in software development. So. That's going to be my pick for this week. Nice. AJ, what are your picks? Oh, I'm just, I'm just going to pick one, and that's, that's fatherhood, because I'm, I'm now a dad. For real. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations. Thanks. And uh, I don't know. I'm, I'm not like a super emotional, sentimental person. I've been accused of being a robot before. So like when this, you know, blue screaming ball of nasty first came out i was like okay this is new this is interesting but um over the past couple days i've I've, like acclimated to to being a dad and i just i love my little girl i'm i'm like scheming how to i can hear it in your voice i'm so happy for you thanks and i'm i'm like like scheming how am i going to to i don't even know if that's the right word but you know, like I'm going to be in charge of her for the next 18 years and then the rest of my life, of course. And, and like, how am I going to, to help her to, well, first of all, you know, we have to figure out what she likes and what she doesn't like and how, how do I help her accomplish her, her life goals and, and avail her to opportunities now while, while she's young. So that when she's older, she has more options open to her. And I don't know, just, and it's just cool to just like this little bundle, just like hold her on my chest and, and she just she sits in this weird position, which I guess everybody else probably knows. This is what newborns do, but they they like tuck their legs underneath, and then they pull their hands in, and they tuck them under their chin, and they put it to the side. And it's the cutest thing in the whole world. So, anyway, yeah, be a dad. All right, Joe, what are your picks? All right, so um, I got two picks today: a board game and a TV show. Both fun picks. Board game is a board, new, kind of new board game called Tiny Towns. Played it last night for the very first time. Super, super, super fun. Easy to learn, but has a fair amount of uh, strategy to it. So really quite a deep, fun game. Provides, uh, I can see a lot of replayability, a lot of variety to it every time you play. And then TV show that I'm sure I've picked in the past, but just continually surprised me as to how funny it is, is the Goldbergs 
it's just it's a great TV show, relatively nice and clean, no Game of Thrones. <laughs> and uh, but really, no spoilers, no spoilers. <laughs> yeah, just spoiler alert. Game of Thrones has a lot of nudity and a lot of death. So if you weren't aware of that, I'm not sure what kind of a barrel you've been living in. <laughs> anyway, yeah, just really fun show. Very very funny. Very very enjoyable, nice, uplifting show. And man, all the time I just identify with the dad. <laughs> so those are my picks. Nice. I'm going to throw in a few picks here. So really quickly, I don't know if I talked about this last time, but I am working on a project called Everywhere JS, And it's a, basically a user's group online. So we're going to be getting speakers and having a kind of an online meetup. And then afterward, people can join in and, and kind of do roundtable discussion where we, you know, talk about what we're working on or ask questions and see what the group thinks and things like that. Also going to have a forum and a chat room. So uh, if you're looking to get involved, the chat is going to be Slack. But anyway, so if you're interested in being involved in that, go to everywherejs.com. And right now it has a wait list. By the time this goes live, it might actually be live. I want to launch with enough people to kind of jumpstart the conversations and then you know have it sustain. And, and I'll be involved and I'll be asking questions. So anyway, and then the other thing that I'm going to pick is when I did the interview for um, my JavaScript story, I found out that Chris Beekler is an author. And so I am going to put a link in to his Amazon author page. What, what kind of books are these, Chris? I haven't actually picked up or read any of these yet. So I've bounced all over the place. Uh, I initially started out by writing a, a trilogy of vampire books. Um, they're not so much horror. They're actually more action-oriented than anything else. From there, I went to a young adult's science fiction world, science fiction book set in a broken world, kind of post-apocalyptic, but not really. It's, it's so far past the apocalypse that the world has mostly rebounded. And my most recent book is a near-future thriller. If you like sort of the Jason Bourne movies and that kind of stuff, that it should be right up your alley. That came out last December, and people are really enjoying it. And thank you very much for highlighting that. I just think it's cool. So, yeah. And I've always aspired awesome. to be kind of a fantasy author of some kind. So I'm probably going to be working on my, my fantasy book now that I'm done with my How to Get a Job book here within the next, probably before the summer ends. I'll, I'll get rolling on that. So. That's a pretty big tonal shift between the two books. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That said, I did get the book done. I'm, I'm working on getting it on Amazon. It's actually on my schedule this afternoon. So hopefully it'll be out by the time this goes live. And it's probably going to... I'm still working on the title, but uh, I'm going to commit because I have to get the cover done and get it up. But uh, it's going to be something like Find Your Dream Coder Job or something like that. So uh, uh, look for that on Amazon. You can also uh, just go to getacoderjob.com and that'll take you to a place where you can just buy it directly from me if you don't want to go through Amazon. So anyway, uh, Dan, what are your picks? Okay, so I've got three picks. Uh, the first pick is something that I'm guessing a lot of people already know about. I've been using it for a while, but I just need to mention it because I'm really enjoying it. And that's uh, Quora, that site where you can ask questions and post answers and whatnot. Interestingly, I've yet to actually ask any question there, but I like perusing through various questions posted by other people and reading the answers. And I just learned a lot of random stuff, a lot of it interesting. And my answers have gotten a surprisingly larger number of views, which is also cool. Uh, so that's one thing I wanted to mention. 
The other thing is uh, technology that was relatively recently introduced by Wix, which I think could be interesting to your listeners, which is something called COVID by Wix, which is actually a technology which enables you to use Wix's drag-and-drop site design tools, but then add whatever arbitrary functionality in terms of JavaScript that you want to add. So you can literally customize the functionality of all the graphic elements, whichever way you want, using JavaScript. And you can code this JavaScript either within our own editor online, or you can actually do it locally within your favorite uh, editing tools like uh, Visual Studio Code or whatever. And it's all hosted on our platform. So it's a really serverless type, quote unquote, type of a solution. It's really awesome. And finally, I recently returned from a conference that I enjoyed so much that I want to give a shout out to. It's actually a couple of conferences. It's called uh, You Got a Love Frontend, or YGLF for short. It takes place uh, in Israel, in Kiev, in the Ukraine, and also in Vilnius, in uh, Lithuania. I don't know how many of your uh, the listeners or you guys get a chance to go to conferences outside the U.S., but if you do, I highly recommend these are awesome conferences. So either try to go or submit talks and maybe they'll pay for your flight and whatever. And uh, they had some awesome speakers. You all know Carl Simpson. And there were also uh, people uh, like uh, Michelle, the guy that wrote uh, Mobix and, uh, and others. And it was, it was just an awesome conference. I enjoyed it a, a whole lot you know, uh, Valerie Friedman from Smashing and so forth. So these are my my three picks. Nice. And if people want to find you online, uh, where do they go? So Quora. <laughs> uh, no, but seriously, probably the best way to, the best place to contact me for about technical stuff is on Twitter. I'm fairly active there. Recently crossed the 2000 uh, follower number, which I know is peanuts to you guys, but it's quite a lot to me. So I'm Dan Shapir on, on Twitter. Uh, again, you can put the link there. If you follow me, I actually put some, you know, occasionally post some fun stuff like the occasional JavaScript riddle that, uh, that I enjoy giving out. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go ahead and wrap this one up. Thanks again for coming, Dan. You're welcome. I enjoyed it a whole lot. All right. Well, we will wrap this up and we will be back next week. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.